acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Last week, we lost one of the greats, singer, songwriter, folk rock legend, and hands down one of the kindest people I've ever met in the making of this podcast, musician Gordon Lightfoot. I wanted to take a moment to remember Lightfoot and his influence on all who were lucky enough to hear his music. Lightfoot was on a short list of music legends I was anxious to interview. The opportunity finally presented itself while I was attending the Toronto Film Festival. He was one of my favorite artists, and he will be deeply missed. Here's my 2016 conversation with the late Gordon Lightfoot. Times I just don't know how you could be anything but beautiful. Over the course of a career that has lasted more than 50 years, Canadian singer-songwriter Gordon Lightfoot has achieved global stardom and exceptional influence. Bob Dylan's a fan. About Lightfoot's songs, Dylan said, I can't think of any I don't like. These songs, which include Beautiful, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, If You Could Read My Mind, and many others, have been treasured by generations of popular musicians and listeners around the world. Many people know about the folk music revival that brought Bob Dylan to New York in the early 1960s. But north of the border, there was an equivalent explosion of talent at that time. And Lightfoot, who got his start singing in boys' choirs, found himself heading to Canada's cultural capital to try his luck. Well, I was down in, uh, in Toronto here looking for work, and I, I got a job as a, as a choral performer in a, in a television series that was on every week. 
and uh, at the same time, I, I branched out and began working in the uh, the, the folk-oriented uh, places because the the folk revival had occurred uh, around about 1960, and I, I would have been maybe 20, 20 years old thereabouts, 21, and uh, so I'd be working on the TV show in the daytime and going out and working at the coffee houses at night. I mean, no, you you had a period where you wrote jingles for commercials, correct? I tried to, to, to make a living. I, they locked me in a room one time, a manager in a, in a place in, on Madison Avenue, and just left me there all afternoon. How'd that go? Well, I, I wrote the commercial, but they, just, <laughs> they didn't like it. They didn't like it. They, they didn't play your version of the commercial. But you, didn't, you, didn't, you weren't in New York for a long time, correct? Well, I would go back and forth to New York all the time to because my, my management company was in New York. I was one of the fortunate ones who was able to uh, acquire a management situation south of the border, so to speak, uh -huh. down in the States, and that was in New York. And uh, it was a great manager. Uh, he recognized my, my songwriting ability immediately, and uh, I got a couple of tunes recorded by Peter, Paul, and Mary, and... One of them went up to number five on the, the Which billboard one? chart for, for loving me. Wow. That's what you get for loving me. That's what you get for loving me. Everything ahead is gone, as you can see. That's what you get for loving me. And so I was introduced to the industry in the States really as a songwriter before they even knew that I sang. You know, it was, it sort of happened on its own. Do you, think you would have been, do you think you would have been happy to just stay in that place and just produce records and, and, and write music and was performing the goal all along? Did you want, were you itching to do that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to. Uh, even as a child, I, you know, I didn't mind singing in my grandmother's house uh, on on the Sunday get-togethers, you know, they would single me out and I would solo. Uh, I enjoyed the feel of uh, the, the communication that I, and I could feel it then. And uh, th that's what I feel now. I feel, I feel a communication when I, I have a wonderful band and we have a great repertoire and we, we just lay the stuff right out there for them. Just pure joy. Yeah, yeah I, enjoy, I enjoy doing that. Yeah, but when you were particularly if it pays the bills, well, that's a that's a desirable silver lining there. Yeah, benefit, yeah. yeah. All that hard work. Well, but when you were writing, when you turn that corner and singing takes over, you know, I, I was doing like, like like small time stuff, and all of a sudden I was. Uh, uh, asked to come to New York and, and open for a Paul Butterfield concert. Mm -hmm. 1966, thereabouts, mm -hmm. I suppose. 67. Were you on the radio then recording? No, we didn't actually get on the radio until about 1971. And what was the first song that, I mean, I, I have a list here, but what was the first, if you could read if, my mind. If you could read my mind. You know that ghost is me And I will never be set free As long as I'm a ghost You can't see the record was out. It was my first album on Warner Brothers, and uh, it, it was out for eight months, and there was no single, and all of a sudden, uh, one of the promotion guys said to his girlfriend, will you listen to this and come back and give me an opinion on it? And Monday morning, uh, his girlfriend, she likes if he could read my mind. With a heart 
heartaches come, the hero would be me. Heroes often fail, and you won't read that book again because the ending's just too hard. To If you could read my mind, hits the charts, so to speak, and becomes a big hit for you. What changes for you? Like, did you have to sit there and say, "Oh, I people are telling you to do things differently, and now you're going to be a success, and they want you to"? We get so busy, we got to hire an aircraft. Literally, that's what happened. Literally. We had to hire an aircraft. Everyone wants to book you. They want you to fly. Same, we'd get in the same place, two different places in one day. So, and when you reach that point of the, and the, that turning point, is the is the next imperative? You got to start coming up with more songs and writing more yeah. songs. Oh, yeah. yeah. They want you to and, record. Yeah. We made three more albums and nothing happened. But we, but I, I kept doing one a year and, and something had to give eventually. And then uh, one summer I wrote that song, Sundown, and I knew that, that it was, it was going to happen, that it was, it was the, the right thing. And it did. It went, it went up to number one. That was our second one. Then it was almost seven, two albums later that we had the record of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And uh, that happened all by itself, too. That, that became a responsibility. Right. It, it, it did. A, a very large responsibility. The song anyway. became a responsibility. Yeah, the record well, well, of the but, Fitzgerald. Well, but, but tell me in your own words, many people go on about that, about the tragedy and the history, and it's a very you know, important song to people you know, in Canadian history. People talk about it very reverentially. Why was it important to you? Uh, because it was... Only one verse uh, uh, contained any conjecture of any kind, and the rest of it was taken from directly from newspaper articles and the, the aftermath, which only lasted for about three days. If I had not wrote that song, everybody would have forgotten about it a week after it happened. Uh, I said people are, are, are all around the Great Lakes area are going to wonder if the song is appropriate, and, and some did wonder about it, mm -hmm. whether it was appropriate for me to have uh, written a song of that kind. But uh, I had gone uh, uh, pretty much with the, the newspaper articles that I scraped up. We had no CPs in those days, and uh, you, you went back to you went to the publisher and got the back copies of the newspapers, mm -hmm. and. Uh, so it's it's accurate. It's 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 accurate in the way the story un, unfolds. I remember the night I wrote it. I was working in, in a deserted house, and there was there was a heck of a windstorm going on right in in Toronto that night. And I, I remember myself wondering, gee, I wonder what it's like up on the on the Great Lakes right now because I sailed up there myself. I had a couple of two different sailboats up there. And wondered always, I wonder what the Great Lakes are like tonight, because you're always hearing about, about things happening up in the Great Lakes. And at 11 o'clock in the evening, there was a report of a ship sinking uh, three hours earlier on Lake Superior. And they were out looking for the, the people. And they never found any of them. And uh, 29 people gone. And I, I had a melody, and I had some chords. Uh, that I was knocking around in this deserted house with the wind howling outside my... Really, it, it was kind of, kind of a classic setting to, mm. to write a song like that. So I began writing the song and finished writing it like two or three weeks later 
we were right in the middle of a recording, a series of recording sessions at the time, so we put it in and it didn't work the first day. We we put it in the second day and uh, did you ever hear of Stomp and Tom Connors? No. Oh, <laughs> I will now. I'm going to run out and get all of Stomp and Tom he was, Connors. He was recording. He was one of our very famous Canadian folk artists. Stomp and Tom Connors uh, po- po- poked his head and said, "That sounds like a hit." He just heard the uh, uh, the melody going, like he hadn't heard the lyrics or anything. So the the appeal of the song is definitely in the melody and the chord changes. And then the the story of the actual event itself, I got as accurately as I could by pursuing old news articles. The wind and the wires made a tattletale sound And the wave broke over the railing And every man knew as the captain did too T'was the witch of November come stealing The dawn came late and the breakfast had to wait When the gales of November came slashing When afternoon came it was freezing rain In the face of a hurricane west wind We'll have more with Gordon Lightfoot after the break. Notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. 
that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. I spoke with musician Gordon Lightfoot in 2016. I was curious how his musicianship had changed over time and what it was like for him recording and performing in the early days. The, the first time I, I started doing it, I felt uh, under, like not confident in what I was doing, what, what I was hearing. I didn't, uh, I didn't like what I was hearing. Of your own stuff, yeah, I, I didn't like the the sound the, the, the sound of my voice bothered me, and and you know I I started working on that stuff, and I and I've been working on it ever since uh, on my vocal, and, I, and I've, I've worked on my my intonation on my instruments. Someone told me that that when you land, because you perform in so many different areas, you really dwell on tuning your instruments a lot. Correct. Yeah, sometimes I chase it around too, but I, but but I've learned uh, through the years that there is a method that can get me into into Scarborough Fair country. You know, like the like the sound that Simon and Garfunkel used to get on their acoustic uh, uh, or orchestral arrangements that they put together right. for their songs, right. and and uh, it actually only came came real for me maybe six or seven years ago after I was recovering from a, a mini stroke that I had, and I had to practice a lot more all of a sudden. Right. So it, it really got me zeroing in on it, and it it, it all comes down to the, the fifths and the octaves, and I'll just leave it at that. I'm just a handmaiden here. For all you guitar people out there, that's Gordon Lightfoot's gift to you and his present to you. It's the fifths <laughs> and the octaves. And I don't have one damn idea what he's... The, the fifths and the I don't know what yeah. the hell he's talking about, but there it is. There's his message to you today. Yeah, open. <clears throat> McCartney told me when I spoke to him once, Paul told me that uh, he said in the beginning they would go into a recording studio, The Beatles, and he said, uh, you know, it was really, these weren't his words, but the message was kind of like, time is money. He said, these guys were like, you know, we want two songs in the morning, and then you go have a lunch break, and you go down to the pub, and you have a cigarette, and you have a fish and chips, or whatever, you come back, they want two songs in the <laughs> afternoon. They, they, they really moved along at a clip when they were doing the first albums uh, for yeah. Parlophone or whoever it was, or EMI. Yeah. And then when they became, you know, the success, they obviously became, then they would take a year, you know, all musicians are the same, then they would take a year to do their next album. You know, they would do Sgt. Peppers or whatever and really, really uh, luxuriate. And, and they have getting more every, time. They, yeah. they gave them more time because it was worth, uh, it was worth uh, that investment for them. Was the same true with you? Do you find that the more successful you became, the more time you wanted to make music? Perhaps later on, but I, I, I pretty much stuck to the uh, to the schedule as much as I could. We, uh -huh. we made like eight or nine albums in ten years there, so uh, you didn't feel rushed by them. Uh, no, we we were getting more time, right. but I, but I was also also improving because I what, what I didn't like hearing, I was I was changing all the time, right. and I was always on, a, on an improvement venture. 
like a guy building himself up and for to play on an important sports team, you know. Yeah. They got it. It's just not just the game. It's the preparation. Say you haven't played for for a month, and all of a sudden you got to get back up on stage. You should be able to crank it out just like it was just the you did a show last night. Right. But you liked rehearsing. Yeah. Well, you, you well, believed yeah. in rehearsing. Yeah, or you're learning new material, or you're going back into the uh, the old catalog, which, which we do because I have a, a rotational situation going on. My biggest problem uh, in my whole life has been too many tunes, too many women. For, for my listeners right now, Gordon Lightfoot is turning sheepishly toward his wife <laughs> with a sheepish grin on his face, and she just patted his shoulder to say, it's okay, Gordon. Well, I can't step on your toes, you know. Yeah, you can't do that. But but I remember reading, I remember listening to an article, <laughs> I remember reading an article that the Rolling Stones did uh, years ago, and, and I was t taken by how, you know, in terms of musicianship, Jagger and Keith Richard were very, very married to rehearsal. And for you to say that, that has great meaning to me, for you, someone who's as great an artist as you are, that you, the preparation and the preparation beforehand... So that when you when the audience is there, bloom, you strum that guitar and you're you're ready. You're ready. Yeah, and we, we and we have the uh, the orchestra itself. I have, have four really talented guys and very loyal people. I, told you. I read about that. Your band is very loyal and, to you. Well, I mean, it's there's no reason why they, they should <laughs> they should not be. I, you know, we, we're all we're all on the same path. I mean, we. we we just want to do a great job, and and you, you got to like make almost make a science out of it. I don't know. My guys are all professionals. I mean, they're they're, they're serious musicians. Yeah, 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 and they 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 do other things. I I just got to let them know what what's coming up. You know, what were you listening and, to back then in the '60s when you were coming up? Who who did you listen to? Well, I was listening to country music, you know, Hank Snow, and then in folk it was Pete Seeger, and it was Bob Gibson, and it was Bob Dylan, and and uh, Simon and Garfunkel, and, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Ian and Sylvia. They were a duet, and they were, it was a beautiful act that they had. So Eventually you met these people. Well, I, I met. But you became my, one of them. My management company, because they were the first ever to do one of do any of my songs. It was Ian and Sylvia. Right. Which one? For loving me and early morning rain. I found an opening with the uh, the folk revival, you know. So I was lucky to be a part of that to ride that one through and survive. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's nothing much out there these days. Uh, you know they're 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 busking. We we've got a, a, a whole bunch of people here in Toronto who who are hovering around all the time. The, the folk oriented artists that, who are songwriters and you know trying to get somewhere. And uh, some some of them uh, are succeeding and some are not. I get to hear a lot of the stuff because it comes across my desk and I I get to hear it. And uh, you wish, you know, that something grand could happen for these people, but you don't know what to do. All you can do is respond. Right. Encourage. Yeah. Where do you think people learn to hone their craft as a musician? In, in, in clubs and in performing live? Well, I was, as well as, I was working in bars, too. You know, like bars and lounges, as well as the coffee houses. And uh, so I had a... The, the kind of a 
a repertoire that was acceptable to plant bars. So I, I, I got a following in a couple of these bars. Mm -hmm. Then, then I, I sort of moved uptown into the uh, uh, the village area, you know, Yorkville, which was just coming into bloom here mm -hmm. in, in town, and get into places like uh, like the Purple Onion, and then the Riverboat, which was really the the plum of the whole lot was the Riverboat because. Uh, uh, Bernie Feeder brought every person into that place you could possibly imagine, played there, right from J James Taylor to Joni Mitchell to to uh, Neil Young, right on down the line. Is he, is he is he a friend of yours? Or? Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, your songs and your singing of your songs, your performing of your songs is so vulnerable and so emotional. What was the most difficult song for you to write or among the most difficult songs for you to write? I tell you that a lot of the times you don't know you're doing it. You 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 you're drawing the material from your your subconscious. You don't you don't actually know what you're doing. You you know you're drawing it from somewhere, and then later down the line, uh, three or four weeks later, you you can assign it back to uh, the the actual event that brought it on. I mean that, that's. Like if if he could read my mind, is is about actually the, the the crumbling of a relationship. Was that painful for you to write? No, because I didn't know what I was doing when I wrote it. It just, it just sat, it, I didn't. You're telling me that all these beautiful folk songs that people weep when they listen to, you're just like tossing it off. Like I don't really know what this is. Let's take a song, for example. Let me let me pick one song. Now, one of my favorite songs of yours. I mean, a song that I just kills me is beautiful. Describe to me recording the song "Beautiful." I mean, do you go out with your friends and you get shit-faced drunk and you come in with a hangover and just lay this thing down and you play poker all night, or do you enter a state? First, I get a chord progression. Then I get a melody. <laughs> it's fifths and octaves, people. Then, it's fifths and octaves. Then I get the lyric. You got the melody, you got the chords, but you don't know. So you you draw. You find an idea that, that that fits the fits the melody. That's Gordon Lightfoot, the songwriter. Gordon Lightfoot, the singer, the performer. Do you enter a state? Do you take yourself to a place when you perform your recorded music, or you don't? Well, I I can uh, I, I can use my imagination. Right. <laughs> I actually saw it as as a sincere. Love tune to to a guy for his wife or his uh, his girlfriend. It it reminds me when uh, of when I was I, I learned how to sing with emotion when I was about twelve when I was doing handling material from Handel's Messiah. It you know, overtook the voice, you. The voice of him who cries in the wilderness and all that sort of thing. And uh, I I learned what what emotion meant when when I sang. Handle handles Messiah <laughs> at age twelve. I sang in competition, uh, so so I could apply. It was easy for me to apply the to summon up that emotional uh, something or whatever it is when it came time to put that song down. But I, I I didn't have it to the point at the beginning that I I wanted to have it, and that's why I've been working on it all my life. Is is getting. Is, Controlling that emotional 
approach to it, making it work for me. You don't want to overdo it. You know, you don't right. want to get and you don't. sappy. You don't well, want to but get saying, That's what's beautiful about your music yeah. is you go right up to a point, but you don't do a lot of hand-holding. You let the audience do the crying for you. You know what I mean? You're, you're, well, you're very... we, we balance it off with a lot of toe-tappers. We've got, <laughs> we got lots of toe-tappers. Yeah, that's true. That's true. For a prime example of the delivery Gordon Lightfoot does so well, you don't have to look beyond this song, Sundown. I can see her lying back in her satin dress In a room where you do what you don't confess Sundown, you better take care If I find you've been creeping round my backstairs Coming up, Lightfoot talks about some of his musical inspirations and explains why he and Bob Dylan didn't get along right away. Explore the Here's the Thing archives. I talk with a very different kind of songwriter, Tom York, from the British rock band Radiohead. He tells me how his producer gave him the confidence to explore wild new electronic sounds. I mean, I was like um, a kid being given a hammer. I was just hammering away on stuff. I didn't really know what I was doing. But he was kind of fascinated by that, you know, and he'd come and literally tidy up the mess I'd done on the computer. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, 
The next, an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. I'm telling you that you're beautiful. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Gordon Lightfoot has straddled the worlds of pop and folk music for decades, but his confessional songwriting appealed to country music performers like Johnny Cash, Hank Williams Jr., and Glenn Campbell as well. They all covered his songs. And there's good reason. That's what Lightfoot was listening to when he started thinking about what kind of musician he wanted to be. It was probably a country music. I made the crossover into adult contemporary music, you know, uh, fairly soon. Uh, and, and and there was a lot of good writing going on in the folk revival too, and I got uh, I, I was influenced by that. So you didn't come into the music business and say, "I want to be Sinatra, I want to be Elvis, I want to be Dylan." Well, I think you we, wanted I, to find your own voice. Yeah, I I I didn't I, I certainly did not uh, take lightly the fact that I, that I was really influenced by Bob Dylan because of the. Not only the quality of the work, but the the output that they they achieved. Mm-hmm. He was prolific. Yeah, I, I, that that was the the amazing part about it. And it said, well, if it can be that easy for him, it must surely be be easier for me. I mean, if he can do this much work, surely I can can do this much work mm-hmm. while appreciating the music that he was producing at the time. When did you first meet him? Uh, 1965. Mm-hmm. What in, was that like in, for you? In Woodstock. Well, it, it was a, uh, was an interesting time. I, I, we actually didn't, didn't get along when we, when we first met. <laughs> he, 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 criti- he criticized my, my, my rules at, at, uh, playing Manhattan, uh, on his pool table in, in Woodstock. And I, I got a little, uh, he got a little sarcastic about it, and, I, and we were all. He was very sarcastic, mm-hmm. and I, I started seeing this coming on to me, and I, I, I left. I left their, their house. Wow! <laughs> and went back down the the hill to Albert's house. Albert. Albert Grossman. Oh. Who, he was the manager. Right. I, I had become sure. part of that stable. That family. That stable. Yeah. So needless to say, since I knew him for so many years after that, because we're all working out of the same place, I became sort of party party central for them when they when they came to Toronto, right. which was often and with the band and everybody, and we had a great time. And I, you know, uh, it was good to have known have known Bob. Um, is it safe to say? Because I've read this in different articles and so forth when I was reading up about you. Um, that when you say you got together and had a good time, was there a period of your life where you had too much of a good time? Well, I mean, there was lots of drinking went on. Yeah, there was a little bit of everything went sure. on. It just depended upon how uh, how severely you were affected by it and what kind of a constitution that you possessed. Right. 
I, I did. I, I drank heavily right up until 1982, and then all of a sudden I stopped. Why? I, asked, I stopped Why? for 23 years. Why? Because it was going to ruin my, my career. And I was making un, unrational, irrational decisions. And one night I tried to climb from, from one balcony to the next in an apartment building on the 10th floor. Yeah, I get it. Sure, and sure, there sure. was a party going on. Uh, <laughs> or you wanted to go from one party? Yeah. I love that. What was a better party in that other wing over there? No, I tried all, to climb. It was all the same. There was two balconies. I want to meet those folks. There was room for me to, to jump from the one balcony to the next. Did you make it? Yes. I, well, I've, I've said it. I was here talking you to you. Well, you might have fallen and broken your leg or something. Who knows? I, I was on the 10th floor. I, I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here. Things like that, you know. But now there and were... then th other things that I did, there were bad judgments, you know, in, 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 you know, with people. And I felt that I was offending people sometimes. And I, I did. So the last thing I wanted to do was offend anyone, you know. And uh, that's what I felt when I wrote the Fitzgerald. I, I said, I hope I'm not going to offend any of the relatives of, of these men. You know, so was it ever this, communicated to you that you had? Did anybody suggest that? No, no, no. Oh. It, it, it never they was. They appreciated it, what you did. Honored. We we, yeah. we just went to the 40th anniversary ourselves just this last November. We where we was it held? Lake Superior, mm -hmm. up in 15 miles, 30 miles uh, northwest of Sault Ste. Marie at, at Whitefish Point. Wow. Um, you now, you have had some very impactful health issues. You had a stroke, and then you had Bell's palsy, and you couldn't have... What's it like to lose feeling in your fingers and you're a guitar player? Well, ask me what it was like when I had the aortal aneurysm. Okay. What was it like when you had the aortal aneurysm? <laughs> well, it put me out, out of business for two years. Did it really? Yeah, it put me out of business for two what years. What year was that? 2002. What were the symptoms of that? You, you pass out and you don't wake up. Oh, I mean, literally, for, the aneurysm burst. For six weeks, yeah. What were you feeling in the weeks prior? I, I would have uh, bouts of uh, uh, stomach ache, and I'd have to lay out on my belly on the bed Right. for a while. Yeah, then it would subside, and that went on over a period of several years. And it started about 10 years before the actual event occurred. So it, it, there is a, a warning. There is there's, there are warning signals. It's a pain. You get a pretty bad stomach ache, and uh, and you had Bell's palsy as well. Yeah, that was years ago. That was, that was nineteen. You were young, huh? yeah, seventy-two, I think. Thereabouts. Yeah. yeah, I had to stop performing for three months, and then I got enough of a, where it stopped puffing enough that I was able to go back to work again. Really? So I just, uh, I just. Uh, Boulder, boulder through, so to so to speak. And then you had a stroke. And it gradually when? came back. That that was a mini stroke that affected my my right hand, which was very disturbing. That was in two two thousand and six. That was when I really started practicing, and that's when I really improved, learned how to really get my instruments in tune. At the same time, so I derived a benefit from from that. Mm -hmm. How do American radio interview hosts differ from Canadian radio interview hosts? Uh, no difference that I can see. No difference to you. Thank the you. That's very are, kind of you. Folks are folks. I, I, south of the border. I always we're, appreciate a kind we're, word. we're all Thank cousins. You. We're all cousins. We're, we're all cousins here in North America. That's the way You're I not political That's now. That's probably why I never moved down there. I've, 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 I follow. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a, a political fan. I'm a fan. 
of, uh, of, of watching the political process. You're an observer. Well, you, you had the situation with the song in Detroit, Black Day in July. Yeah. But from the Detroit riots. That's right. And you wrote a song about that, and it caused you a little bit of a grief. And the record company released a single. Did you, and did you feel that that was something that you resented? Or, like, how did you feel when you got pulled well, into I, that? Well, I, I kind of shouldn't have done that. It was almost like, Why? The, like the wreck. Well, well like, like it was... Uh, 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 well, I should have. I was working in the city a lot in the in the Detroit circuit there. There was something about it. I kept saying maybe I shouldn't have written a song like this. You know, it was written as a folk song for an album. Right. Uh, the wreck of the Ebony Fitzgerald was written as a folk song for an album, and uh, so political purposes assigned by other people. You didn't have a political purpose when you wrote the song. No. Right. Interesting. Just a story. Right. And the soul of Motor City is bared across the land As the book of law and order is taken in the hands Of the sons of the fathers who were carried to this land Black Day in July Black Day in July And when, when the record company took the song off the air So it didn't piss you off, it, the record companies never pissed you off? No Never? No, they were, when they, they were told great. you what songs to put on the album, what songs not to put on the album, it never bothered you? Well, we started, we always worked that out together. You did? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, with, with exceptions. This was very early in the career, too, before I had, had the, the, the level of authority that I, that I needed to establish. I, I was in house produced, and, and I, uh, I, I used to uh, be able to discuss, discuss and discuss things with, with them there. And uh, very fortunately, fortunately to be able to do that. What song that when you sing it, you could sit there and go, man, I really, really nailed that. That's a good song. Oh, I'm sure okay. there's a lot of them, but e what's one that just comes e out e of you? East of Midnight. East of Midnight. East of Midnight. That's, that's my, one of my, my very best ones. Put me somewhere east of midnight, west of the turnpike, anywhere I'm I don't do that. I used to do it with this. No, no, do you know why I don't do it, though? The, you because, are such a funny cat. I, I, East of Midnight's I, my best I, song. I, Man, I you got to hear that. I, I don't do that anymore I did, either. I did it for years. This is my hike. My last four or five albums are probably the, two, the five best albums I've I made, but unfortunately, my my momentum had run out with the uh, the record company at that point. Mm -hmm. But I still kept producing but, because. But, but, I, but isn't that interesting? You just said my last four or five albums the, are the best the, albums I've ever. Do I you made. really believe that? Sure, you do. Yeah, you recorded yes. those albums between what period of time? Nineteen uh, nineteen eighty two and and. 2006. So you recorded an album in 2006, right before you got sick. 1985. 1985. 2006. During so you... 19 years, I made five of the best albums. I finished an album while I was while, while I was down with the aneurysm. I finished an album there. It took my mind off my condition entirely. So it was very fortuitous that I had uh, a whole bunch of stuff sitting in the uh, in the can at the time, as they used to say. And the best one of the whole lot is, is East of Midnight. Do you write songs now? 
I've, I could. I, I, I always have four, four or five tunes on the, on the back burner. Your wife is practically groaning behind you, <laughs> nodding her head like, yes, of course. There, there's always tunes on the back burner. Uh, it's beautiful you, songs. What do you, what, when you write songs now, what do you write about? I, I just write, write if about... If you say about, jumping from one about, balcony to the other, whimsy. I'm going to kill you. I, I, I just write, write about whimsy. I, I try to sound, sound intelligent. Right. You know? What's on your mind now? Well, I was thinking about the about the one I, 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 that has the turtle in it. I like that. I think she likes the fact that I introduce a turtle into this song. <laughs> it's more than Is that. Is that the part that you like about it, darling? You know, you know what loves, I'm seeing here? It's amazing. It's, it's, it's amazing. Your wife is this gorgeous young woman, and I realize the glue of this marriage is you write songs about turtles for your wife. That's amazing. No, no, it's, it's, it, that's I don't just have one, that advantage. That, that's just one, one scene. I've got to bullshit a... my wife every day and convince her into staying with me. <laughs> and you just sit there and go, I wrote this song for you, baby. And it contains I wrote a, a song about a turtle. I know, I know. It, it's, it's like... Uh... Come, if you will, while the earth is still fertile. Lady, I see society through the eyes of a turtle. Turtles are soft, and they, they've got feelings, too. Maybe they think too quickly for me or for you, and it really doesn't matter. we got to end there. Well, maybe, <laughs> well, maybe not. Maybe not. Just to show you the kind of a stuff it is. Okay. Into the microphone, Come please. Come will back to the stable, lady. I see Marilyn Monroe, and there stands Clark Gable. He'll milk the cow. She'll stop the show. There's many a good hand felt a chilly wind blow, and it doesn't really matter. Don't ask her, you know, why I write that stuff. Yeah. Ask him about for loving me. That's a... Oh yeah, well, well see, I, I I sang it for twenty five years, but it's really a, a vicious. It's very, it's just a very vicious uh, song of a, a unrequited love song, and it, and it was it was written during the time when I was I was was still married, and I I wondered, my goodness, what what does my I, it was like almost like Wilt Chamberlain. I've had a hundred more like you. I'll have a thousand before I'm through. Was one of the lines in it, and I was married to someone. And I, you know, I, I hated singing the song, and finally I stopped singing it, the same way as I stopped drinking in 1982. But even that only lasted for 23 years. Then you sang it again. No, you don't sing the song. You won't no, sing I, it. No, I don't. A lot of people do, but other people record it. And even you El won't sing even it. Elvis, Elvis Presley <laughs> for loving me. That's what you get for loving me. I gotta say, I look at these album covers. You're you're one of the best looking guys I've ever seen in my life. I mean. Was that tough for you? Was that a tough part of your career? It, well, I, I you think it helped you? Probably. I'm, I, I'm sure. I, I'm sure it did. But I'm sure, sure, it must yeah. have. What's next? When are you going on the road again? Uh, Friday morning. <laughs> I feel a little blue because I can so. There's still a lot of things that I should know. Anyone can guess I don't know how to press My Saturday clothes I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. I feel a little sad To watch them leave But I'll be cool because I don't 
happy times are gone I can still put on my Saturday clothes Hello! Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.